Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Piyush. And this is Level Up UA. Okay, today we've got the marvellous Tim and Dave back with us. Um, we are really, I would say, starting to do a review of 2021. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that's happened in this last year. What are we going to talk about specifically, Adam? I think this episode, we talk a lot about one of the biggest changes of the year, which is obviously Apple and, and iOS 14, yeah. 15. Um, so that's that's one of the big areas that we're going to cover. We're going to cover uh, Facebook or Meta. Um, we're going to look at mergers and acquisitions. And also, you know, we'll have the second episode of this because we're going to divide it into two parts. The second episode will cover the M&As uh, that has been happening across AppTech and why is it significant in terms of what happened in 2021 and you know other stuff like Netflix stepping into gaming and NFTs and how that's going to become big and all those exciting and Apple opening up stuff. in app purchases or, or yeah. out of app purchases even is there's, yeah. there's a yeah it's it's gonna be fun bunch of things to talk about so let's get into it let's crack on Okay, so thanks very much for joining us again, guys. It's always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Let's start with introductions for anybody who doesn't know you. Uh, Dave, do you want to start? Sure, I'll, I'll be brief, just because I think third podcast we've done together this year, so I'm assuming most of your audience may have heard from Tim and I before. When it works, it works. There, there you go. Well, um, my, my name's David. I'm the co-founder CEO of Dataseats. We're an in-house programmatic platform. We focus more on gaming companies, trying to help them take uh, UA. In-house, we have recently launched uh, new products helping gaming companies do cross-promo in-house as well. You know, previously, I was in the attribution world, uh, you know, similar to AppsFly, so it's those combined you know, kind of areas of expertise, attribution and programmatic. Cool. And Tim? Yeah, my name is Tim, uh, co-founder and CEO of Kaizen. We do pretty similar stuff to what David does. We uh, help advertisers bring programmatic in-house with our platform around use cases, uh, both for game and non-game app developers, and around use cases that encompass like retargeting, user acquisition, get uh, or scan campaigns, and cross-promotion as well. And Tim and I are proof that you can be amicable friends and competitors at the same time <laughs> over the last 10 years. You know, it, it is possible, and uh, it's a pleasure to do these podcasts. In fact, may I drop an anecdote, uh, David? I remember when I was about to start Kaizen, I called you up and we talked about the business idea. I think this goes back like 2018. And then David was like, yeah, this is interesting. Actually, I'm working on something similar. So see you in the market. And then I think we met like a year later uh, when we both had launched the product. I don't know if you recall that. I absolutely but, do. Yeah. Because, because I remember you were looking for kind of seed investment at the time. And, exactly. you know, and as I was, and I could have been a complete a-hole and gone, right, tell me everything and not told you. But that isn't the type exactly. of people I are. So amicable, friendly. My highest respect. Exactly. That's what I wanted to say. Actually, I was yeah talking to you as a potential business angel. You said, hey, working on something similar. And there we go. <laughs> I think Adam, these two can have their own podcast. Process. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> now I was saying these two can have their own podcast, it's so <laughs> meaningful listening to them. Anyway, I uh, will delve into the first question because we're we're going to talk about, this is our year-end podcast, right? So we have a bunch of things that we want to talk about. The first obvious thing that comes to our mind is Apple and Scan and 14.5 and 15. Now, I mean, it's a, it's a basic question that we'll start with is how do you look at it retrospectively? Like in the sense, at, at a macro level, how do you think and why do you think Apple did it and how are they 
sort of benefiting from it and how has the industry changed across uh, you know because of these changes i think tim will start with you first sure yeah i mean on a very macro level i think yeah a lot has been talked about this and my view gets more and more in the direction that i think it was a move to to build their own advertising business i think yeah, that kind of was my view from the beginning but i think this has materialized more when we look at the market share gains of apple search ads and so on. I think it, it looks like more to be a play to build a business rather than defend privacy. I think it's both still at the same time, and both comes like as a benefit to Apple. So it's a no-brainer move. It's like, yeah, build a business at the same time, position as a more trustworthy brand towards your end consumers, which are ultimately your clients, and and fight off B two B competitors. Yeah, I mean, and mess around with Facebook as well. David, what's your take on this? I fear Tim is right. I hope he's not, because I don't think <laughs> the industry needs an ad network, the predominant ad network dominated by Apple. And so I, I don't. I think Tim is right, but let me go back to where I was earlier in the year. I think that uh, Apple were leading the way as a privacy white knight, you know, waving their privacy first flag. I think their second agenda, which was driven, which was driving the privacy piece, was was that you know particularly Facebook, you know, and Google, and some SRNs and some others were making billions of dollars from harvesting IDFAs, you know, from users without you know consent. So I think they did genuinely have a reason. I think it was a financial reason. You know, you even heard Steve Jobs talk about Silicon Valley abusing data, you know, ten years ago. So that that's never gone away. So I think that was their lead agenda. Unfortunately, as Tim points out, you know, ASA is killing it, and um, I, I think. Not for the right reasons. I think there's got a huge amount of inbuilt bias for ASA. I mean, you know, even AppSfire can comment on that. If the whole world's turned fingerprinting, ASA's got this massive bias, you know, towards themselves. But um, I think there is very likely Apple ad network coming beyond ASA. But I think the primary agenda, and I think that still is the case, is to stop Facebook, Google, others harvesting, you know, Apple user data. At the end of the day, I think yeah, I, I completely agree with the with both the aspects. Actually, <laughs> you know, you can't because at the end of the day, Facebook is sort of suffering from it. But let's take a step back and look at how Scan has sort of evolved in the past one year, right? I mean, we never thought that Apple would come up with their own attribution system in certain sense. So, how do you think Scan has evolved, and where do you think Scan would go in the future? Because it has started from 2.0 with just a basic, uh, you know, tracking system in place to 3.0 where we're talking about multi-touch and mm. direct postbacks and all those stuff. So, you know, how do you think Scan has evolved and how do you think it's going to evolve in the future as well? David, you want to go first? Do you first? think it's moving in the right way? So, so, so I, Tim? Or I, I, I can yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think when any product is released, it's always going to be in its infancy. And, you know, and Scan 2 was its actual real first release. And it was in its infancy with, with just post-click tracking. That was also uh, aligned with 14.5. So 14.5 had this real slow rollout, but it was the first time the whole industry was experiencing this new attribution system. No doubt Facebook and Google throwing bombs at Apple about legal you know, type stuff. I'm pretty sure that would have been happening because there was no view-through attribution on this new attribution system that was forced on the market. Imagine if you were, you know, I, I empathise at this point, imagine if you were YouTube and suddenly you had view-through attribution removed. <laughs> Yeah, that's no good. 
you know, so I actually think there's this slow rollout, probably lots of discussions going on. That's when you got Scan 2.2, which then included view through attribution, and then you saw 14.6 hockey stick. I'm an absolute data nerd, as, as my friend Tim is. You, you know, so it was, it was in May that actually Scan 2.2 came out, and that's when 14.6 you know, kind of skyrocketed. Yeah, you know, there's lots more to come, but I don't want to, you know, take take, take all, all all the bandwidth. So that probably took us up to halfway through the year. There've obviously been different changes and improvements since. But Tim, one thing that I want to specify is, and I want to I want to bring your thought process in, like. With 14.6 and the rollout, there was another massive change, which was on privacy threshold, where we saw a lot of non-null conversions increase on Facebook and reduce on uh, DSPs, and it massively reduced even for our uh, partners that we work with, right? What do you think was the change and how does it again go, uh, like, does it tie it back to, you know, Apple having a fight with Facebook and Google, specifically the self-reporting networks and not uh, strong arming DSPs and others at the same time? Mm. I think, I mean, I think the privacy threshold is just something invented by product managers at Apple to like make triple sure. I, I mean, I don't think that if they wouldn't have that threshold, that a lot of companies could make a lot of harm to users' privacy. I mean, the way SKN Network is built is already making it incredibly hard to use the data for anything, right? The privacy threshold just makes it even harder and I personally just believe it's it's like a typical thing where you have a product manager, engineering team getting a task and somebody says, guys, make this like non-hackable. Make it such that even the smartest people in the industry won't reverse engineer to some way that they can re-identify user. And then they go with like the delay timer, they go with things like threshold, et cetera. And they say, look, now it's safe. It's like a nuclear power plant. <laughs> you can't destroy it ideally, right? And I don't think that is needed, really. I mean, first, there is no such thing as, yeah, 100% safety of privacy. And the harm created, if you could theoretically identify some user with a certain probability back, I mean, it's not that it's going to kill people or, or like, save lives or anything. At the end, it's, it's a re I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we're still talking about just having data about users or not. And I think if, if the goal was to you know, to not make others build business models around this, which is what David said, and I find that a very legit reason also for Apple to in, in, install all this. I think it's, very, it's a very legit reason. Um, if this was your goal, you achieve that without the thresholds, without the privacy thresholds. That's what I think. So it's kind of, yeah, it's probably coming more from, from a product manager or so. I do, because I completely agree with Tim. I think it's been massively over-engineered with the headline of privacy, you would get 99% of, of the privacy benefits for consumers without these really harsh privacy thresholds. And they are harsh. And actually, the privacy thresholds hurt ad tech, genuine contextual privacy compliant you know, ad tech capabilities, the, the privacy thresholds. So you've got 99% of the consumer privacy gains without them. That You put in the privacy thresholds, that then just damages ad tech capability. And this is where I think Tim and I probably are aligned. This is where we're more cynical about what well, is that is that 1% you know, additional privacy gain from these privacy thresholds that then does the 60% damage on the legit contextual privacy compliant ad tech industry. You know, is that actually the, the more cynical agenda you know, behind it if there's then their own ad tech you know, product coming on, on the back of it? But it has been over-engineered. I even imagine that there is these like privacy gods 
walking around Apple with their clipboards, you, you know, just going, right, well, to get it to the nth <laughs> degree, we can go here. You know, without actually thinking about the consequences, obviously we're thinking about our own businesses and AppStyre and Kazen and Dataseek, but you've also got all the developers out there as well. There are other implications of these privacy thresholds that haven't been thought through. There are lots of medium and long-tail smaller developers that can't drive enough installs to get over the privacy threshold, and what happens? DSPs, like in a case in data seat, can't spend on them. You know, so, so, so there are these unthought-through consequences, um, and, and damage is done to legitimate, you know, compliant you know, players within the industry. But so, so this, I hope, if I had the opportunity to write a, a Dear Apple uh, letter, you know, from you know from the good guys of the industry, I would say reduce the privacy threshold. It is hurting your indie developers, the startups that create great content for your ecosystem. Yeah. It, changed, it changed a couple of times over over the period of time over the year, right? The the privacy threshold logic has changed a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, no, obviously nobody knows exactly what it is anyway. Not, not significantly for the better. And by the way, yeah. none, none of this is documented. It's, I compare it to like Google, uh, you, know, uh, you know, search engine optimization. Everyone's you know, trying to figure it out and, and second guess it. And, uh, but yes, we do see some changes that have, that have happened. Yeah. On the conversion value privacy threshold, you know, has improved. So there's more conversion data coming through. But considering it's limited to the first 24 hours, it's like, well, so what and good. We want all of the first 24 hours coming through, seeing as we're not getting day 7, day 30, day 365. It's the publisher privacy threshold that on the ad tech side is most damaging for being able to optimise and see where, where you should be running your ads and where you shouldn't be. I guess that's kind of the next question, though, is really who has this damage the most? Who, who has been the most affected by the whole SKAD network implementation? Actually, interestingly, I think the, I mean, the World Gardens, we know, uh, we hear, have been the most affected, not because for them the rules are, I mean, the, SKAD, the way SKAD network works in theory should still give Facebook and uh, Google a relatively good input for optimization as opposed to other ad tech players in theory. But in practice, the reason they are harmed most is because they obey all the rules. They have to obey all the rules. They can't put themselves into the risk zone. Whereas all the independent ad tech industry is largely continuing to work on, on fingerprint. And, and that is by choice of the advertisers because advertisers that choose not to do it are basically harmed in the, their ability to effectively spend marketing dollars. And if I was a game developer and I'm competing with three other game developers and I don't do it, and I mean, I, I basically only work with Sked Network and I, I don't use um, any probabilistic attribution and my competitors do that, then the reality is I will lose out against them. So over time, these companies will become less relevant or disappear. I think that's the thing we see in many markets with, that are very competitive is like, if there is a way to, to kind of have a leg up against um, others and one or two players use it, either they will win all the market and then over the long run, no, I mean, this means that this SKI network didn't fulfill its purpose because then the players who don't follow the rules actually win or everyone doesn't follow the rules as strictly, then the, the competition balance is kept. I mean, that's kind of my thesis. So net-net, I think that's kind of a paradox. <laughs> with the introduction of uh, SKA network in the in the industry. 
do you think there's a, a a way of thinking from Apple that if they were to impose it right now, that that could maybe weaken the the entire Apple ecosystem? You know, in terms of developers maybe focusing more on on Android. Yeah, I think that's one thing we see at least CPMs for Android going up, which means developers monetizing with ads, making more money from Android than uh, from iOS. So it does impact the ecosystem. I think a lot of like what has been built with accurate ad targeting has actually grown the ecosystem a lot because users were like finding the apps they they liked. I mean, with a higher probability, and they're more likely to monetize in these apps, which with like less accurate targeting um, of ads is um, is weakening the overall ecosystem. So I do definitely believe it has an impact. Whether that really matters that much to Apple, I don't know. I think Apple is not a homogeneous decision-making engine. I mean, they are like, you know, a lot of people in different departments with different interests and probably oftentimes misaligned interests where maybe the, the people in charge of like developer relations have completely different interests than the, the corporate strategy and, and so on. If I, if I may add on, on, on the topic of when and when and why, uh, one of the things, because we're also trying to predict it as, as, as we all are, but one of the things that we look at is the proliferation of scan versions. If you remember at the beginning of our podcast, I was saying, well, with no view through, I'm sure you know Google and Facebook will have even bigger issues about scan and you know possibly you know you know making some taking some action. Scan 2.0, it still looks like about just under fifty percent of the impressions that you know that we see programmatically. And then you've got 2.2, and then three is is still quite small. Bearing in mind that 2.2 is the view through. So, so I, I believe that the time that they can take action to say this is fit for purpose is when 2.2 plus is then making up the majority of programmatic inventory. And the other thing I've discussed with some of my customers and, and, and partners is, oh yeah, but we've submitted our Scan 3 version app to the App Store. Well, that it still needs to propagate. I had to explain, well, all of your users this year, you're going to have a bunch on Scan 2 and a bunch on Scan 2.2. So it's not just, oh, they've yeah. submitted to store. It takes weeks, you know, to actually get, you know, if you've submitted your well, app store. Unless, unless you do like more. a hard cut over, yeah, I mean. Like. Exactly. So, 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 so one of the things that we monitor is, right, well, when is view through attribution for Scan, you know, included in the majority of impressions? Because that, that, that benefits, you know, Facebook, Google, but also in the case in the data seat as well. If we're being measured by scan only, as we are by some of our clients, well, we want view-through attribution included in the majority of impressions. Because at the moment, it's a complete mess with scan when you have these three different versions, one with, you know, multi-touch, one with view-through, and one with click-through. And, you know, and they're comparing it to what they used to do with LTV tracking. And it's like, uh, it, it's like comparing apples to, to watermelons is, is, is the exact thing that I said to my you know, partners today. Because they're trying to say, well, you know, how do I compare it? I'm like, literally, you can't. When everything is on one version of scan, you can try to make some, some, some comparisons. So, so, so yeah, what's what right. this space? In, in, in our next podcast, let, let Tim and I update you on whether view-through attribution is then at the 70-80%, because that's when I think you know, they would be able to say, this is now fit for purpose, although many of us would still disagree with that fact. Yeah, we might have to make this a regular thing so you can give us updates over time. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, what, David? Uh, you... I can actually share the data. I was just looking it up. For yesterday, what we see is 55% is on 2.2 and higher. 
and 45% is on lower than like 2.1, 2.0, mostly 2.0. It, it's reassuring that Tim's, Tim and my graphs are pretty much statistically significant, is what I've been saying. You have two DSPs listening to similar traffic that come up with the same result. Yeah, I, I similar inventory. But just less than 50% is still scan two, no view through. You know, that, that isn't fair to then force on an industry that values impressions and views and not just clicks. That's the problem, you know, because I mean, as an advertiser, I can tell you that we are struggling so much because there are some partners who are on Problistic, some partners who are on SRN, completely scan. You know, you can't allocate the budget similar because you're not having the same level of measurement across the board, right? And you don't know which data is completely accurate, which is no, you don't know how to do. It's something I've wanted to ask you for a little while, actually, and we haven't had a, a little one-to-one call for a while, so I'll ask you on, on the podcast. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. How have you found it as an advertiser? Like, what have the what have been the biggest problems from your perspective? I think at the end of the day, it's the it's the it's not having a, a similar sort of data coming into the back into the system from across the board. I think it's the un- inconsistency of data across the board from different channels. That's been my my biggest worry as an advertiser. Because let's say we adopt Scan, right? Let's say we everybody adopts Scan and all the inventory is two point two plus. Because they're right. I mean, I've like. Think about the level of data that we're getting. We're getting data for scan. We're getting data for non-scan inventory. Non-scan inventory, we're getting uh, for non-scan inventory, we're also getting probabilistic data, right? So you have two separate data for same channels. And then you have to further drill down between view-through conversions, click-through conversions, and, you know, multi-touch as well with 3.0, although it's a small inventory. So there are different, different, once you drill down into it, there are different, different layers of data. And you don't know which one is completely consistent and which one can you use to say that, you know, your campaign has been effective. So that's been my biggest struggle, getting uh, data into the system. But, uh, you know, I think we'll, uh, one question that I wanted to ask David and Tim again, from a DSP standpoint, and especially from a Celsius serving DSP standpoint, are you seeing, because of whatever changes, my hunch is that DSP is benefited from an advertising standpoint? Because, I mean, I'm also seeing that shift along with a lot of advertisers that I speak to regularly. Do you think, and as compared to 2019, have you seen the benefit on the DSP side in terms of advertising spend being allocated more? to DSPs and sales of DSPs? I would say it's not as simple as that because I think the uncertainty created um, on the side of advertisers and with that, with that uncertainty, I think a lot of like the budget spend that was very well forecastable and you would like invest today to back out on like payback windows of 180, sometimes like casino, sometimes like 520 days. Yeah, 12 months, yeah. User LTV payback, right? 18 months could be. With that whole uncertainty and measurement, how would you make these kind of long-term investments? So I think it has impacted a lot the the way the industry looks much more at short-term metrics as opposed to the established like long-term metrics. Of course, on a like a on an aggregate basis, the developers can still look if if users are bringing in the money or not. So it's not that they are like at risk of investing something they won't never pay back, but it's. Yeah, I think on so there is that effect which I think has been more negative than positive. Than there was for I think for companies like like David and us, uh, there is more um, appetite to experiment, which is in general good. And then in terms of like being able to rely on fingerprint or on probabilistic attribution in some cases could be a benefit, but that depends much more on the de- on the on the developer. And I actually not sure if. DSPs benefited so much or maybe ad networks much more like ad networks that control also the value chain end to end, including the supply with their own SDK. 
may have benefited more, I think. David, do you agree with this? I, I agree with Tim's principles. I, th- I think the most damage, as we've discussed, is Facebook. Facebook was a huge lion's share of the spend in the industry. That has left a vacuum. You know, and I think that vacuum does allow marketeers, allow but force marketeers that used to be spending most there to then go, well, what, what do I do with the rest of this budget? So that does create opportunity for, for others, but it's complex. It's not as simple as, well, I'm another one that can perform in that old way. It has all this complexity of measurement and fingerprinting and you scan, scan only. So there are, I think there are increased opportunities for all. I agree with what Tim says. I, you know, I think, the, you know, a, a future, I think, you, you, I mean, you can see Act loving an iron sources market cap. You know, are they filling some of that Facebook vacuum? You know, for sure. I think... Uh, you, you know, owning uh, you know the supply side, you're owning mediation, you, you know, as well as an SDK install base, as well as the demand side. Uh, you know, that, that, that clearly is a benefit in this less data world. Well, you, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in one of our other co- podcasts. You know, what's driving all the consolidation when there's less IDFA data? Well, you need to start getting all this other data. And well, if you own the the, the supply side, the demand side, and guess what, an attribution company as well you can start filling some of those gaps. So I, I do agree with Tim. I think some of the SD card networks have, have been able to grab some of that. I'm sure, you know, Tim and I have as well. We've been able to capitalise on some of the pain that marketeers are feeling on, on iOS UA, you know, particularly because we do have strong solutions there. And, you know, and quite honestly, some of them are lost as to, to what they should be doing. And, and they need educating on, on, on the new world, which is contextual. You know, marketeers, you know, previously didn't really need to understand what contextual optimization actually meant. They could just run, you know, with their normal partners that would know which devices to target. You know, so th- there's a mix match, but, you know, I, but hopefully there's a net benefit for us all if the big gorilla in the room, you know, has taken a big hit. One yeah. thing that I've been interested in that, that I remember we talked about in our first podcast quite a lot, actually, is the fact that the sort of hyper casuals were going to be a thing of the past. You know, hyper casuals wouldn't be able to function on the the monetization model of of in app ads. Have we seen anything there? Because I, I, it doesn't feel like there has been a huge hit on them at all. So I think that have they had an impact? Yes, they have. If you if you spoke to a large hyper casual studio, have their fill rates and their eCPMs on iOS have they dropped? And has that hurt their PNL? Yes. Has that been countered with them? Focusing some of their UA budget and getting more Mao and Dow on Android, it has, but there's only so many users on Android, so if they all do it, well, it's just becoming more competitive anyway. And, um, and maybe shifting to a more in-app purchase model and that kind of thing as well. So it's Exactly, but it, I also think that's one of the drivers behind the M&A strategy. You've seen Voodoo recently you know, acquire Beachbump. You've seen Rovio acquire... You, you know, so, so this... If, if you're a founder of a hypercasual studio, even if you'd had some, some eCPM or revenue hit on iOS, you've made it up on Android, had your likelihood to be acquired by one of the you know, large gaming topcos increased, I would argue it's increased significantly, and you've, you've seen some of that happening. So it depends yeah. on what you define as damage. If your goal as an entrepreneur is to, is to sell your, your business for hundreds of millions of dollars to a Zinger or an EA or a Rovio, then you could argue it's done you a good turn as opposed to a bad one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I do. I do think it has a bit plateaued. That's just my my feeling. I haven't looked more into data to to prove that yet. But I think it has a bit plateaued. And what we see is like hyper casual studios venturing a bit out of the hyper casual scene. And we've seen that I think for a while. And I think they've they've built massive user bases, but they have very low retention and very low monetization. So it's a logical step to try to push that user base more into casual titles. And those might not be casual titles as 
with as deep and long gameplay as like the major casual titles that have existed for like five years, seven years. But yeah, I think um, I think that's exactly what Hypercasual is doing. So the the companies we now look at uh, being hypercasual companies, in reality, they're not. They they all become game developers that have like a portfolio of apps for different uh, with different like monetization models. So uh, moving on to the next topic, uh, Tim and David, like which is we've talked about talked about how Facebook has sort of suffered during the whole Apple move. But Facebook also responded with something called Facebook AM changes that they've done, right? I mean, which has affected us for sure as an advertiser on Android and iOS. What do you think of this move uh, from Facebook and especially in the context of all the other SRNs also, I wouldn't say they have gone that extreme and sort of made the changes, but they're moving towards that, that uh, scope, like especially with like, you know, TikTok technically not an SRN, but TikTok is also moving towards not providing the data through VTA. And, you know, Twitter has also made similar changes and, you know, uh, Snapchat as well. So what do you think the bigger aspects of the changes are? Honestly, when I first heard this, I was a bit surprised because, well, we are not an MMP. And I was actually surprised that advertisers had the possibility to get access to that data. I'm aware that an MMP has access to that data always because that's the only way you can dedupe installs. But my understanding was that it was not allowed to be shared with advertisers. And when this news came out, it was actually the first time I realized that advertisers did have access to, to this information if they signed, I think, a separate addendum agreement with Facebook. So it was only something very few developers probably were actually using. And I personally believe there is very, very few, even more uh, fewer than that, who would have made sense out of that data and made any like meaningful application or any meaningful analytics internally that would allow them to, to drive better decisions uh, with that data. But that's my, my assumption because we're not a game developer. But yeah, that's kind of, yeah, how I look when, at it. I mean, that, that audience that you're saying there is, is probably the, the sort of biggest gaming companies in the world. Correct. Uh, <laughs> with the, that are probably making the most money out of all of this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a bit more cynical, but I'll say it with a smile. Welcome to the face. war, David. <laughs> uh, but just you know, having the attribution background, I kind of know a bit more about the history of it. If some of you may remember when mobile app tracking, aka Tune, was banned by Facebook, that was actually because they were releasing post-view, post-click data, IDFA-level data, uh, you know, to their advertisers. I know we didn't know we were allowed to, but that's when they got whacked. Right, this is actually what led to actually Facebook realizing, well, actually sharing that data. And sharing that data, it, it just allows it to be pulled into clients' BI systems, you know, so that they can track post-view, post-click LTV for Facebook. Uh, you know, so it, and many people use MMPs just for attribution then pull the data into their BI systems to track LTV and ROAS. So, so, so big gaming companies, or anyone, couldn't do that unless they had this ATT post-impression, I can pull all my data out. That's when Facebook said, okay, you can if you sign this DPA or this, you know, this addendum to the agreement saying you'll behave with the data. Um, so it's the reversal of that situation. And it is saying, Mr. Advertiser, we don't trust you with this post-view or post-click uh, post IDFA, you know, IDFA data of, of opted in. And I think, I think that's nonsense. I, I, I do. I think it's a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. 
I think it's, you know, it, it's Facebook who was the biggest harvester, you know, and, and user and abuser of IDFA data, <laughs> you know, with a bit of post-Cambridge Analytica, a little bit of, you know, so I think it's privacy PR headlines to say, right, we're going to be, you know, privacy compliant, you evil advertisers, you're not going to get access to this post-view data. Um, so I think it's posturing. Um, unfortunately, with these things, as soon as one postures, well, more sheep, well, they all start following, and then you have TikTok. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, well, we're not going to share, you know, our, our granular data with you evil advertisers. <laughs> Come on. You know, who's been gathering all the data and making billions of dollars out of it in the first place? Um, so I think it's PR and privacy posturing. You know, so, some, so consumers read, oh, well, Facebook's more, more, more compliant than they used to be. I For all the postures, yeah. David, I mean, you've, you've called us evil and you've called us bad as advertisers. I'm feeling <laughs> really a, hurt. With a, smile, <laughs> with, a, with a smile on my face and, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm candid. I, I, no, I no, 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 I'm just... I have friends <laughs> at all these organizations and I'll say the same to them. I know, I know. No, but, uh, no, makes sense. I think I think I agree with that, David, because, I mean, we are suffering because of that, because of changes, but it's a good thing that uh, AppSplare and uh, uh, Facebook have come up with Google Referral Solution, at least on Android, where hopefully... Uh, the impact is not going to be that huge. Anyway, I think, Adam, I'll ask, let you ask the last question, which I think is very close to you. So I'll, I'll let you take away from here. <laughs> so the, the, well, we've got loads of other stuff that's happened this year. And I think we're going to have to extend this into another episode. So let, watch out for that one. But I guess the last, the last question for this session is out-of-store payments. I mean, like all of the court action that's been going on between Apple and Epic and all of the uh, Apple now opening up out-of-store payments if uh, you contact the users outside of the actual app. I think there's lots of stipulation that goes along with it, lots of, of uh, legal analysis of the wording and that sort of stuff. What do you think? Does it, does it open up ways of being able to not have 30% taken off of you as a gaming developer? If, if I may, Tim, I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. I think everyone's seen the headline, I used to pay 30%, and now I'm going to have these other providers that may charge me as little as 10%. So they think, yay, there's another huge variable here, which is conversion rate of payer. If your conversion rate is 2 or 3x higher through the, through the Apple slick click here to, to, to pay compared to having to be sent an email and clicking on this external link and having to go to a web browser. It's not as clear cut as going from 30% Apple charge or, or even if they reduce it compared to another provider. And I think there needs to be a, a lot of attention paid to these third party providers and then providing as slicker tools and as slicker process to allow a, as, as equally or as close a conversion rate to a payer to what Apple can provide. And by the way, I think that's why Apple ended up saying, fine, go for it, you can have third-party providers, because I think they are confident that their process for the consumer is going to be that much slicker. I mean, um, to be fair, as a consumer, unless I was being offered way more in-game currency for the same price for going to a website and actually putting a credit card in and everything right. else, I, why would you do it? it, well, it but that's, exactly. When you're paying for any goods or services online, what, and you have a, you know, different payment options, what do you choose as a consumer? You choose the most convenient thing. Now, now sure. would the developer you know, charge a different price point for the different payment mechanisms? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, if, if that starts happening, well, you know, could Apple then start saying, well, no, you're not allowed well, to do the, that? At the moment, I don't think that's sort of legal in Apple's eyes, is it? Yeah, I, well, I don't well, think you're allowed to change the, the values. Yeah. 
I mean, so, so, so I hope that there are these third-party solutions that are slick and easy, but I know as a consumer, I just choose whatever's easiest to me. And if I've got a PayPal link, I click it because it just happens. And gaming on mobile, most of the time you're not actually like sat at your desk or something where you could just pull your credit card out and type it into a machine. You're out and about, and the quickest and easiest way of doing that is just by sort of passing that payment. It's, uh, yeah, it seems seems like a... A godsend in some ways, but actually being able to get people to use it, I think, will be incredibly difficult. And I think there are two uh, dimensions to this. The one is the the money a developer could save on the transaction, and that's up to 30%, which is attractive, I think, primarily for developers that have subscriptions or very large in-app purchases, because there it actually matters. Also for the consumer in potentially gaining some advantage, whether that's a lower price point or something else they get in return for not going through the Apple payment uh, flow. So I think for the typical in-app purchase, like $199, $599 to buy something, it may be less relevant. But for the like subscription-based revenues where you pay like $100 a year or $150 a year, I think there makes, makes a bigger difference. And then on the other side, I think it, it puts the developer more in control of the pricing strategy. And I think that's maybe as important as the, the, the kind of the margin they, they don't have to pay to, to Apple um, is like being more in control of that because as far as I understand, Apple has a lot of rules around what you can price and how you can price. Now you can start to do like really granular price differentiation. Think about like collecting users, age, gender, and what else and offering them a price that you know like somebody who's like 40 plus is more willing to pay for your product. If you have that information, before now, I think within um, the, pay, uh, the, the the payment of the App Store, you cannot start to offer them a different price point for the same product than you would offer like an 18 year old. But in your own payment flow, you could do that. And with digital goods, I think price differentiation is super important to max out the total revenue value because the cost of goods sold is literally zero, like the marginal cost of goods sold. Price differentiation, you could like. For the people who have very low willingness, you could sell the same product. Willingness to pay, you could sell the same product for, let's say, $5. And to people who you know would be willing to pay more, you can sell the same product for $100. And I think that's not in Apple's interest because it harms like user experience. And it kind of is also, I think, a bit gray tyrant to walk through, like the whole price differentiation. I think in some countries it's also forbidden by law. You cannot uh, differentiate price usually on, on, on gender or on, on ethnicity and so on, and for reason, right? But theoretically, there is a lot of new ways developers can max out the revenue, which I, I'm curious to see if it actually unfolds like this or not. But that may be the biggest still, thing. Yeah, still early days. And, you know, like, I think one thing that we have to get rid of the notion is it's not going to be 30% at all. Like, even if we save money, it will be at the cost of something else, maybe providing some extra coins or something like that to the user that would take away at least 15 to 20%. So the benefit that we're talking about is usually around 10%, 50%, something like that. I think we'll have another session of this. So, you know, I think we'll wrap up. It's already 45 minutes. So thanks a lot, Tim and David. Uh, we'll thank you again in the next podcast, in the next podcast episode. But, you know, thanks a lot for joining this time. And we'll uh, discuss other big questions, including the biggest question. I think Adam is very excited about this, which is the mergers and acquisitions in the next episode. So... Thanks for both. Thanks for listening and thanks everyone. Thanks, Tim and David. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that was great.
And just to be clear, we're going to be doing a whole other session because we really didn't get through much of that list. Um, so we'll, <laughs> As we'll always, when we speak, <laughs> when we talk, we never get to the end of the list. It's just be how we operate. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the next episode, we're going to be looking at things like uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Facebook, obviously changing its name. We're going to be looking at Netflix, uh, venture into gaming. We're also going to be looking at um, NFTs and, and crypto gaming and those kind of areas. So These I, I are think things still... that we need to study, Adam, because I'm, I'm very confused over NFTs, to be very honest. I, I, I'm yet to get my head around it. I don't know oh, I'm very, very much looking forward to those ones. So I, <laughs> I think it'll be, it's, it's going to be another fun episode. So please, please watch out for that one. Uh, okay, I just want to say thank you to, to David and Tim, um, who will be joining us again. And, uh, of course, our wonderful sponsor, AppsWire. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of Level Up UA Podcast, please be sure to rate and leave a review. We have so much more to bring to you. So hit that subscribe button. And join us next week as we level up UA.